0: This episode of the EdSurge Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Fusion Conference. EdSurge has spent seven years reporting on the education technology space, and we are channeling our learnings into one national conference, EdSurge Fusion. Join us in October as we convene the best and brightest education leaders in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. Visit fusion.edsurge.com to register.
1: Welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm Betsy Corcoran. I'm CEO and co-founder of EdSurge. Education is chock full of trends. And here's one of those new big trends that people have been talking about this year, the role of networks. So what does that mean? What do networks have to do with schools? Can they better support teachers, administrators? How about students? And do networks help us learn? Here's the most provocative question. Are schools as organizations poor at learning? And could networks make them better or might they make them worse? Well, that's what we're going to explore today in this episode of the EdSurge podcast. Lucky for us, we've got three people who've gone really deep on the topic of networks, and they've got some surprisingly different points of view on what role they serve in education. They've all written books recently on the topic. In fact, the most recent is just coming out in August. Our first guest is longtime education specialist Anthony Kim. Anthony is the founder and CEO of Ed Elements, and his book is called *The New School Rules: Six Vital Practices for Thriving and Responsive Schools*. Also with us today is Lydia Dobbins, who is CEO of the New Tech Networks. Her book, which she wrote with Tom Vander Ark of Getting Smart, is called *Better Together*. How to Leverage School Networks for Smarter, Personalized, and Project-Based Learning. And third, we have Julia Friedland-Fisher of the Christensen Institute. Her book's the one coming out in August, and it's called Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Student Networks. So, I'd like to start with Anthony. Anthony, tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book.
0: Yeah. You know, over the course of the last 20 years, I've been in education. I've just noticed that we spend so much money trying to implement programs and always wondered why we couldn't actually move the needle off in many of the cases or implement them well. We have a lot of people that work incredibly hard in education. We have a lot of smart people, yet these initiatives don't get off the ground expediently or well. And so the thing I started studying with my co-author Alexis Gonzalez Black, who works at IDEO in, in org design and was formerly at Zappos, is trying to understand how people work and what prevents us from getting the work done. And one of the kind of the key aspects of that is how the teams function and how the teams meet and how teams work together to achieve goals.
1: Great. And we're going to come back to a couple of different classes of networks that you see, Lydia. How about you? Why why this book? Why now? I think much to build on Anthony's
2: observation that the need and the demand to innovate in public education is increasing. I would say coming from many reasons, and the hardest aspect of innovating is contrary to public kind of popular belief. It's not the starting, it's sustaining. It's getting better at getting better. And we have a tendency to want overnight success. (laughs) We want to transform teaching and learning and we want it overnight and we want instant results and know that we're getting it done. And the act of innovating is really hard work. And I would say it's almost impossible to succeed in a silo or even within a school or a single district. And so we really see networks and school networks in particular as a path to help start and sustain innovation by helping both individuals in schools, schools themselves and districts apply good network design
1: to help the innovation start and sustain. Fantastic. Julia, you're looking at a different class of networks. Talk about who you've looked at in your book.
3: Yeah, so I'm focused, as opposed to at the level of networks of schools or adults, I'm really interested in the state of our students' networks, um, and it's for a couple reasons. One is in terms of how we're talking about opportunity in America right now, and our education systems have for so long focused on students' human capital or what they know and can do and largely ignored students' stock of social capital, whom they know, and the access to opportunity that networks tend to open up. So I really wanted to understand, well, what does the data tell us about that? And then secondly, what are the innovation opportunities? Because at the Christensen Institute, we've spent about 10 years looking at all the wonderful ways we can use technology to improve instruction and to deliver content and to assess students, but we haven't looked as much at using technology to connect students to relationships that might otherwise be out of reach.
1: Great. So I'd love to dive into this question of networks because with all big words, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Anthony, you've talked about three different classes of
0: networks that you've seen.
1: Tell us a little bit about what the differences are.
0: Yeah. So for us and the districts that we work with, we find learning happens when these three networks exist. An expert network, a peer network, and a transfer network. If you think about the learning line, basically it's a like there's a slope up, it plateaus, there's a slope up and then plateaus. And so I believe that the expert network helps change the slope. It helps you accelerate the, uh, the consumption of learning and con- content. The peer network allows you to shorten plateaus because sometimes when you hit a plateau you might fall off or sometimes uh, you might need just a little bit of encouragement to continue. And then the transfer network is what deepens the line. When I can teach somebody else how to learn content or uh, transfer that knowledge to somebody, it allows me to deepen my understanding of it. And so often, uh, so many districts that we've seen, you see an expert come in, a turnaround operator, and take over schools, and none of that knowledge actually transfers over, and none of the capacity gets built. In other places, some districts, just everything is DIY, like I have to do it myself. And so their learning curve is really slow and then very few districts and schools have the ability to transfer knowledge well and so until you have all three of those in existence like a lot of kind of the implementation of knowledge and programs often fail
1: that's great julia lydia would love to hear you guys comment on is that a construct that works for the kinds of networks that you guys have studied I think those are three excellent examples of networking behaviors. I think
2: Anthony's right that if you have one of the three or two of the three, you're you're probably not gonna be able to build and sustain a network. I think one of the aspects of network and network contribution, we, we often talk about giving and getting either on demand or as part of a structured learning together. I think roles matter, so if you're a classroom teacher, what you want and need from a network is different than if you're a school leader and if you're a district. If you work in district capacity, moving from a general mindset of accountability as punitive rather than trying to construct positive learning, those are all roles that have to be redefined as we think about innovation. I think one of the aspects that we have to get at, networks are not a solution for this, is the construct of schools and the construct of time for adult learning. and and networks can be a way to think differently about that adult learning, but they aren't miracles in and of themselves in terms of creating more time. I love
1: that point, I'd love to come back to it, but before I do, Julia, does this construct work for students?
3: So I think when we studied this among students, we really took, sort of like you said at the beginning, an individual lens, and if you think of an individual in a social context or a social network, Similar to what Anthony and Lydia were saying, different relationships and different parts of that network serve different purposes, but we look at it through the lens of sociology research which says we have typically a cluster of strong ties of those people that we trust the most, that we rely on the most and then moving outward, sort of a web of weak ties. And the powerful thing to remember, strong and weak can sound sort of like value judgments, but strong and weak ties can both be very valuable. There's a term, the strength of weak ties, which is that students can benefit from people who they maybe don't know as well, but can give them new information and access to new opportunities. And at the same time, our strong ties are folks that we can rely upon. So I think. Again, this is, it's a different lens if you're thinking at the level of the individual versus the system or the school, kind of how a network operates um, and, and how we would maybe even sketch it out on a whiteboard if we weren't on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: one thing that sounds like it's really common with all of the networks we've talked about is trust and trust building. I would love to hear a little bit about examples where you've seen people do a great job of building that kind of trust, and that that became ideally fundamental, I think, to the network.
0: Yeah, so I I think when um, we talk about trust, it usually occurs when there's some sense of predictability. Hmm. And uh, something like a protocol in a meeting like today, you're actually facilitating a conversation, and so uh, there's a very predictable uh, way for us to communicate meetings in general in many organizations don't have that kind of predictability right someone can take over the meeting there's the agenda is an attempt to make make it predictable but we never follow the agenda and so (laughs) how how you create predictability between humans is really how you build trust
1: interesting Okay, predictability as an element of trust. That's fascinating. Lydia, do you? So um, so... I have to think about that.
2: So since we don't want to have silence here uh, on this podcast, <laughs> I'm going to take that in, in and process. I, I, I would answer a little differently. I think my starting answer would be I think networks and it, it play an important role because schools by themselves don't know how to learn. And it's kind of an irony that schools are in the business of delivering education but as an entity
1: schools themselves don't know how to get better so that's a pretty provocative statement schools don't know how to learn okay so why would a network then help solve that problem why why would that be a way that schools might start to
2: learn well let's assume that a school might not take that as a throwdown comment but an invitation to think about how can we do a better job of meeting the needs of every student okay. and that means I need to think differently about how we as a, a collective entity a school itself are going to get better at that business and so that can create a desire to learn from others, to be connected to others who are, who are engaged in the same desire to get better, mm-hmm. and can create a climate in which instead of personal blame, it's actually the sense of we are all going to learn how to learn together to be better to serve students. There's, a, there's an awful lot of inherent blame, I would say, along with the punitive aspects of being in a school environment. get in the way of of the trust building that we talked about, or even the idea of being vulnerable to try to do things differently, getting out from the cloud of of fear of failing in a a spectacularly public way. So I think it is meant to shock the idea that schools as entities don't know how to get better, but it's meant to open up a different conversation and to think differently about how would I, exercising agency as a school, figure out how to do it then? And, And I think that's an opening to consider being parts of,
1: of multiple networks as a way of helping that learning occur. That's fascinating. Do you, Anthony and Julia, do you do you see that? Do you see schools struggling to learn?
0: I do, and the reason I, I think that's the case is because uh, anytime I've tried to learn anything, I didn't get it right most of the time. In fact, it's an indication if I'm learning that I don't get it right. And so, however, like school systems and school behaviors have been different. It's like, you kind of need to get it right the first time. We think the stakes are super high, which they are, but because we don't want to fail and the stakeholders around us want to make sure that we don't fail, we get into over-planning mode. Mm. And so we have to justify everything and predict everything. And as a result, I end up Putting myself in a position where I do fail because I can't predict all of these future activities that I'm asked to predict on and so by the time I actually create the plan it's actually a plan for failure mm-hmm. not a, a, a plan for learning mm-hmm. and instead of moving into building a case and evidence we're actually building an artifact, which is the plan, and we're saying that we delivered or didn't deliver on the plan, which is what I hear all the time, instead of I'm building evidence that helps me learn about how to get this done.
3: Yeah. I'll I'll up the ante on Lydia's provocative statement, which is that I think schools are are perhaps poor at learning, and they are equally poor at connecting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the part of the premise of all of our work, but looking at it from a student perspective, you know, the great John Dewey himself said that we should have schools that were modeled after embryonic communities. Mm. Given that 50% of jobs come through personal connections, we cannot afford to isolate our students. And given that sort of the way that the future of work is shaping up, networks are going to be even more crucial to sort of go in and out of different jobs um, more flexibly. I think that being poor at connecting is actually higher cost than ever before and we need to figure out how to both connect our schools to other schools but also connect our students to relationships beyond the four walls.
1: Cool. So if networks can help us learn and <clears throat> can help us connect, talk for a moment about what you learned in the in the work that each of you did on your books about what were signs that a network was delivering, that it was doing what it was supposed to be doing, that it was a healthy network and it was helping its participants learn and connect. How do you, what are things that, that are signals of that?
2: Well, I think, I'll jump in, this is Lydia. I think one, one of the ways to think about um, networks is, uh, and to Julia's point, we Modeling as adults probably need to experience being part of many networks. So it's not so the, the idea. So what's the best
1: network that you're a part of?
2: Well, I guess my, my flip answer is New Tech Network. Um, <laughs> what's because, the second because best because network you yeah, um, So well, here's another one, and it came up earlier today. New Tech Network is a member of the League, League of Innovative Schools. Okay. Um, that's a, a collect, you know digital promise, which was formed as a way of trying to hold up these sort of exemplary districts that are modeling innovation, I'll just leave it broadly at that, and, and they are working constantly to uh, adapt the ways in which they can learn from each other not simply demonstrate to each other. So I think that's an important distinction about being part of a network. It's not uh, simply to be in the audience and consume, which is part of the old paradigm of, of both teaching and learning, but to engage in learning, producing, um, studying, uh, getting better at together. And I think that's where networks can be the builders and act as bridging between governance structures. So it doesn't matter where you're, what kind of school you are, charter or public. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't, I mean, all those things can become immaterial to the learning and networks can serve that important role because often the very structure
1: of the existence of schools limit the ability to learn with others. So fantastic. So the networks are helping us learn, connect. Engage. Julia, what's a what's an example of a great network that you've seen, or that you're part of?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking of much more informal networks that I'm a part of, which I think we have to keep in mind in this conversation that not every network is officially has the stamp of approval of a national organization, <laughs> but that they also arise in the course of our daily lives, in our neighborhoods, or in our. I was thinking of my yoga community, not to sound like a cliche of a yuppie, but I think. When, when I think about network quality, there's a couple things that come to mind, especially if we're talking about arming students with, with strong networks. One is access to caring relationships, which are predictors of all sorts of things, but according to America's Promise Alliance's latest research, a leading predictor of staying in school or re-enrolling if you drop out, is whether you have access to at least one caring relationship. Another is diverse relationships, so that you're not actually limiting yourself in terms of your access to opportunities down the line. And the last is sort of multiple relationships. So quantity does matter because we can't predict the future. And so our social capital or our network is actually a reservoir into which we can tap as things come up in our lives. So we it's tempting to define network quality by what we need right now, but we actually should be defining it also in terms of an unpredictable future that we are sort of investing against. Fantastic, and Anthony, you've been in literally
1: hundreds of schools. Where are you seeing schools really participating in great networks, building great networks?
0: Yeah, so I I, I love to have non-related analogies, so here's another (laughs) one. So there's an app called Strava, which, you know, if you exercise and bike and run, you you have a social network that can motivate you by sharing what you're doing. I also tried joining a triathlon club, a physical triathlon club, thinking that I could enhance that experience with actual people. And they had a, a series of scheduled meetings, and I missed most of them. <laughs> and what I, But I couldn't ever get into the network, and as the less I participated, the more distant I got. Mm-hmm. And so what I noticed is, uh, in school systems that are actually trying to build networks, they put all the infrastructure in place, mm-hmm. but participation is low. Mm-hmm. And so I think my question is, how do we get participation to be high? once you put the infrastructure in place. And one way is I could extend the network, like we talked about the league, outside of my district. And so if I have more bodies, then I could assume a certain percentage of them are gonna be participants in the network. Others are consumers. But when it's too small, like a district with only 500 kids and 30 employees, it's hard to create a network when you only have 30 people. And so I think the question is like, how do we get participation in these networks and that's very hard to do when people don't have habits and behaviors that allow you to do it. And the only way you build habits and behaviors is by providing value.
1: Right, one or two more quick questions. Lydia, you've actually said you think that chief network officer could be the next buzz term that we hear in schools. So I'm gonna ask you the flip side, which is, well, what are networks not good for? Because we too often, when we come up with a new idea, want to think it's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. So what should a network not do? One thing I would say, this is Lydia, is
2: don't assume that the tight central office, uh, enterprise-wide control of a a system is going to uh, translate into network design and produce different results than the current tight central office. So I I think when we talk about school networks got to be a combination of both hub and spoke to use a technical term and self-organizing and recognizing that what I want out of a network and what I'm willing to contribute to a network depends on the time of day my needs my problems and so I agree with Anthony you've got to have a certain size to the number of members so that you're not putting an undue burden on every member to have to be on duty all the time so I think helping to build networks that are diverse that transcend governance structures and understand at a personal level what the the needs someone has for being in a network and what they're willing to give in exchange for that opportunity you need to be fundamental to good network design
3: well lydia's co author tom van ark when i was first starting my book on, on social capital said to me, A network is a platform. And I was like, Tom, I have no idea what that means. And I've I thought about it for like three years and I've started to finally get it because a network is a place where all sorts of things can play out. And as a result, b- bad interactions can be amplified, bias can be amplified through networks. And I think. Bearing that in mind as an example, not necessarily of something that a network is bad at, but a, an unintended consequence of a network is that it can amplify something we may want to avoid. That's a great point. Um, and, and just be a platform for that. And the example I've also mentioned before is sort of that a, a, a single bad network uh, mentoring relationship for a student can be more detrimental to his sense of self-worth or identity than no mentor at all. And so there's a, there's a quality control piece to everything we're talking about here that we have to be exceedingly careful with, especially if, if this becomes a fad, right? If this does become the next thing that school districts glom onto, but we don't have the right quality measures in place.
1: Anthony, are we at risk of having a network fad?
0: I don't think we're even at the place <laughs> where we have a networks, but I agree with Julia that this amplification is the problem, right? So in networks, you could lose sight of what else is possible right? Because it becomes an echo chamber and uh, you only see similarities. So one of the things that, you know, just kind of tying it to kind of learning. One of the things that we've noticed is it's good, great for sharing information and uh, circulating data, but it's really hard to get quality analysis in the network. And that's because everyone contributes with their own opinions and we're not we're struggling to figure out what quality analysis and often the creation happens off off of the network too so like i create and then i try to shove it through the network and so i don't think that networks are great for creation Mm -hmm. but they're great for kind of evolution and and evolving iteration Great. can i
3: just add on that i think that Networks may not be great for creation, but relationships are, yeah. right? So we actually have to think about right. the, the number of, yeah. of players or yeah. people yeah. or schools we're thinking right. about. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a matter of, this is what a lot of the future of work research mm-hmm. suggests, that we're going to sort of swat in and out of teams right. to get different things done. Right. It's the ability to tap a large diverse right. network that lets you be better right. at that.
0: It doesn't yeah, mean that the yeah. alternative
3: is doing everything alone. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think
2: networks can't by themselves be creative, but they can facilitate the self-organizing of, yeah. of teams to be able to be yeah. creative, yeah. so I think it's a, not an end of itself, right. but yeah. a powerful means to right. help more humans connect with more humans for good.
1: Biggest lesson that each of you learned from writing your books, Anthony?
0: Book writing it sucks, (laughs) Uh, and I mean an example of this is uh, when I was writing my book. Of course, you put a schedule together, and you say, well, you know, one example might be every Saturday I'm going to spend four hours from eight to twelve, sit down and work. And you sit down and you have blanks. Then it becomes a question of like, how much can you like? Then I started thinking about like, how much can I actually plan the moments of inspiration for a book? And there's some balance between having those moments of inspiration or creating situations where you need to be inspired to creating rigor. And I think we struggle with that in schools too, where we, there's some rigor that we're trying to create some uh, structures, but at the same time, we're not creating the moments of inspiration that we need. And those aren't You just can't be inspired by saying you're going to be inspired from 10 to 11.
1: Every writer is applauding you right now. (laughs) Julia, how about
3: you? What was
1: your Um, biggest So I
3: think partly because I work at the Clayton Christensen Institute, I I started the process thinking I was writing a book about technology and thinking about the role of technology to connect more students to, to more diverse relationships. Partway through, I realized I was writing about institutional design because, as I mentioned, our schools are these very sort of enclosed spaces that don't lend themselves to even leveraging technology in the first place to expand students networks and and now as as we wrap wrap the work up and I'm sort of talking to more people in the field about it I'm realizing like unfortunately this this idea is not even sexy yet <laughs> and there's there's an awareness gap around building awareness that social capital matters that networks matter for students and and Talking about the data that is out there to even get people to the table to say how do we network students into opportunity? Excellent. And Lydia, what about
2: you? Um, many things. I'll first of all plus one Anthony on on that, and, and Julia starting with one idea and then finding midway through it was another. I am more convinced than ever that that people with really good intentions are in the business of 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 being in in, in ed- educators. I also think that networks can serve a way to break siloed and to break the pattern. Anthony mentioned earlier: it's not money; it's not it's not for lack of knowing what works. And so, I I think school districts are not going away, and I think being able to have have districts look at. What they gain in participating actively in multiple networks is a way to bring this country into not just this century, but the next one. So I'm pretty bullish and started the book with one idea and ended feeling even more encouraged by what's
1: possible. We've got to stop here, but all three of these books are great summer reads. Add them to your beach bag. I'd like to thank Lydia Dobbins of the New Tech Networks, Julia Friedland-Fisher with the Clayton Christensen Institute, and Anthony Kim of Ed Elements for joining us. I'm Betsy Corcoran with EdSurge, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Ed Surge podcast.